The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Gin and tonic for bad-tempered Florence Nightingale running up and down the stairs. Four. Yes, I did get a power hose <laughs> for my birthday. Three. I don't want him to resign. We need all the strikers on the pitch that we can get. Two. God, the conspiracy theorists are going to have a field day with this. <laughs> One. We have liftoff. We have liftoff indeed, and welcome to this launch edition of Planet Normal a brand new Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And with me, Liam Halligan. Sick of gotcha political coverage? Tired of endless cynical mainstream broadcasters? Bored of a relentlessly negative news cycle? Then this is your podcast, Planet Normal. Because some journalists are normal people too. Yes, I've teamed up with my fellow Telegraph columnist, the shy, retiring Liam Halligan, to bring you this podcast. We've spent a long time, many years, writing for newspapers, and we're both from very ordinary backgrounds. We were having a chat in the back of a taxi after a Brexit party, and we thought, a bit fed up of watching all those TV programmes and never hearing anyone say anything we agree with. So hopefully we're going to get how ordinary people think. That's right. Each week, we'll be getting together to discuss the news as we see it from our down-to-earth perspective. And we'll bring some interesting visitors to Planet Normal too. This week, as Planet Normal speeds away from the launch pad, we'll hear from the postman-turned-cabinet minister-turned-award-winning writer, Alan Johnson, in the eyes of some, the best Prime Minister Labour never had. So, Alison, we're launching... In the middle of the lockdown, of course. So let me start by asking you on the domestic front, how's the lockdown been on uh, Planet Pearson? <laughs> well, it's been, you know, I've had ups and downs. I'm sure like everybody, Liam, I've been here with my two patients, my husband and my daughter, and they've had COVID on and off for oh over six weeks now. And it's a real beast. It takes a long time to go. And you've had it, haven't you? I did. I got it quite early in, in the lockdown. Profound loss of taste and smell. I could have told the government that two months ago was one of the symptoms. <laughs> yes. They've only just added it to the list. And yeah, completely debilitated. Literally couldn't get out of bed for a few days. And I've, I've never had that before. I've never felt like that in my life. It, it, was, it was pretty scary. Somebody described it rather brilliantly as like a really malign advent calendar where every day you open a new window and some horrible symptom comes out. I mean, the strangest thing I think is that, you know, you can't get any tests. You know, everyone's sort of sitting locked up in the dark. I mean, luckily we've had, I've had two things to keep me going. Bingo the cockapoo puppy, who's been really keeping all our spirits up and um, gin and tonic, which is my patent COVID remedy for bad tempered Florence Nightingale running up and down the stairs, bringing snacks to everybody. Our, our dogs are usually have to beg us to walk them that they're hiding because they just don't want to <laughs> yeah. walk three times a day wearing them out. <laughs> I know all the nation's fat puppies have become whippets. <laughs> Liam's great secret of getting through lockdown has been his new power hose. No male midlife crisis phallic substitute there, Mr. Halligan. Yes, I did get a power hose <laughs> for my birthday. And so I spent the whole of my birthday finding out what colour my patio really is. <laughs> and in the, and in doing so, I, I literally almost shot my little toe to the moon. <laughs> Those things are so powerful. <laughs> Ridiculous. I think power hose sums up quite a lot of your exuberant approach to life, quite honestly. <laughs> oh, God. I don't, I don't like where this is going one bit. <laughs> they're, 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 they're incredible objects and they're in no way 
uh, a substitute for a, a midlife uh, fast car. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's been, I mean, I must say, I I do feel for, you know, children who are locked up. I've got three teenage kids and obviously it's tough for them. One's back from university. They have to get on with each other. My eldest in particular, she should be larging it in as a first year undergrad and she's at home sort of emptying the dishwasher I do I do feel sorry for them yeah and of course for many kids where there's not much space they might not have access to a garden haven't been able to go to school this has been really really tough I think mine will sort of say you've got nothing to look forward to mum you know we've got festivals are cancelled and you know all the kind of nice end of term things and you know rites of passage we've had kids I know everyone jokes and says oh lucky them not having to do GCSEs or A-levels but it's not really you know those are things when we look back we can really remember those summers you know when you got your results and they were really key things in your memory and I think a lot of kids are in a very low mood which is one reason I'm really keen the schools get back absolutely as soon as possible. So, what do you make of um, Mr. Cummings? You just written about it in the newspaper. <laughs> if, if you saw me, Liam, I think I've, I'm peppered with shot from really angry Telegraph readers. You know, when you write a column, you've often got a very strong idea of what you want to say. And this week, I felt very mixed feelings, which is quite unusual for me. And I felt that. Yes, we know he's a target, isn't he? You know, he's Mr. Brexit and they all hate him. And he's my hero, really. You know, he did battle with the establishment and got Brexit done. But I also felt that he'd really struck a wrong note with this and that, yes, he'd obviously had a vulnerable child. But I felt that if you are in charge of the lockdown and you've imposed it on 66 million people, you have to be whiter than white. You know, you cannot be seen to be breaching the rules and then, you know, coming out with some excuse about, oh, in subsection 97B, it says X, you know, was what all of us at home were told is stay indoors. If you have symptoms, do not go out. So I understand while I don't want the government to lose Dominic Cummings, who I think is brilliant and we need him and we need him to, you know, reform the civil service. I also understand why a lot of people are thinking, hang on, why is he allowed to do that? And I can't see my mum or I can't see my grandchildren. I, I agree in the sense that, well, I agree with what you wrote in your column that he should have said sorry, even if he didn't feel in his bones he had a reason to say sorry because he hadn't broken any rules. It wouldn't have cost him anything to say sorry. And a lot of people would want to have heard him say sorry and I understand why many reasonable people are mightily hacked off having been in lockdown for the thick end of two months. Now, let's tell Planet Normal something interesting, which is that Dominic Cummings slept on your floor, didn't he? Oh, oh God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so years and years ago when I lived in Russia, God, the conspiracy theorists are going to have a field day with this, (laughs) Halligan and Cummings together in Russia. When I was a journalist in Moscow in the mid-90s, he was a young undergrad who had just graduated and his tutor wrote to me, the historian Norman Stone, and asked me if I could put up for a while, quotes, one of the brightest undergrads I've ever come across. Mm. Back then he was very intense, incredibly analytical, uh, obviously very young and immature in many ways, a little bit socially awkward, but but he was an impressive guy even back then. Mm. But I don't think he should resign. I, I don't think it's right that the, the media can basically witch hunt down an advisor just because they don't like him and they don't like his politics. And there's a lot of conservatives who are outraged at what he did. But I think unless the police say that he broke the law, 
which he hasn't yet, they haven't said that yet, then I don't think he should be forced to resign. Yeah, and it is it is a proxy Brexit war now, isn't it? I mean, they tried to get him, do you remember just a few weeks ago, it was, has he sat in on the SAGE committee meetings, you know? And then when that wouldn't stick, now there's you know obviously something more serious to attack him with. And I think any decent person would be really appalled by the scenes in the street outside his house. He's got this very vulnerable little boy. I mean, can you imagine being the parent in the house with those hyenas at your gate yelling at you, loud noises? I mean, that, I think, is really atrocious. I I, I, I do too. And I think what it comes down to is the law. You know, many essential workers even during lockdown, were driving places. You know, MPs were coming to the House of Commons and back. Many of the MPs criticising him now for for, for obvious reasons. I I thought under pressure in his Rose Garden press conference, he was remarkably calm and professional. And well turned out. I think it made me laugh. I thought, someone's ironed that shirt. I understand that many reasonable people, it isn't a Brexit proxy war for them, They just don't like what he's done. And that's fair enough. And you can be reasonable and come to that conclusion. I would simply put a higher bar on it. You know, you can't blame the guy because he's got parents who have got a farm that's got outbuildings on it. That's otherworldly to many people, of course. That will upset Mm. them. He's a relatively wealthy, extremely well-connected, privileged bloke. And that annoys lots of people who have been hauled up in a small urban flat with screaming children. I completely get that. But there were exceptions to the rules, particularly regarding key workers and particularly were, regarding Liam, people that, with that, small that, children. Um, that Easter weekend when he did that trip to Barnard Castle and um, somewhat hilariously claimed that he was going on a drive to, to make sure his eyesight was all right. So so that's going to become that's going to become a running joke. But I remember that Easter weekend and we were told we were not allowed to go on longer journeys. And I remember thinking, can I drive three miles and take the dog for a walk in the woods? Yeah. So I think what we're up against is a lot of people doing their best to, you know, stay at home, save lives. And then suddenly, you know, Everybody becomes more resentful and judgmental. We've been doing nine weeks. That's why I think the resentment and anger crops up. I mean, another point is, do you think that the childishness of some of the messaging, which has been really kind of like, you know, seven-year-old kid level, hasn't given people the sense that they can use their own instincts and judgment. It's been very, very play school, hasn't it? Listen with mother with the press briefings. And they didn't they didn't say they didn't say if you find yourself in this situation, do feel free to use your common sense, did they? So I think that's that's been a mistake. Of of course they used we've all heard the slogan to death, you know, so the our generation's equivalent of keep calm and carry on, isn't it? Mm. Stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. But the guidance was there. I mean, the thing that really irks me is that there's so much else that's going on that the media should be focused on. I mean, look, the yeah. economy is tanking. The furloughing schemes, you know, how long are they going to last? What's the implications of this for the future of the economy? You know, we had a very, very low, thankfully, death count for COVID earlier this week. We've got incredibly important economic decisions to make. Look what's happening in Hong Kong as well. I mean, there's so much going on in the world, and yet the media is completely fixated on on one thing. And I think, yes, polling shows that a lot of the country's upset about it. But if you look at the polling, a lot of it's very leading questions. If he broke the rules, do you then think that, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, and I just think we should be focusing on on what else is going on. It feels like we're very stuck, I think. We had the original thing, didn't we? You know, three weeks, we can do this. Let's flatten the curve. Everybody bought into that. And then it's like another three weeks and everyone, you know, swallows hard and thinks, okay, we'll give that another go. And now here we are. And two days ago, the number of deaths in England, as you said, was is down to 59. The scientists in Oxford who are trying to do the vaccine trials, Liam, they cannot find enough virus in the community yeah. to test. Yeah. They think the trial may fail. That's how far it's disappeared. Almost all of the infections now are in hospitals and care homes. And care homes is where we've had 38% of the deaths, of the total deaths, 38% from 0.6% of the population. Okay. So, Everybody now is still under this sort of ludicrous sort of don't go outside, don't say hello, you know, maybe say hello to one of your friends in a field. And then on the other hand, you're thinking, you know, you you couldn't catch the virus if you sort of ran naked down the frozen aisle in Tesco. So they seem to be very far behind what we're all doing. Everyone's been you know, meeting up with friends, socially distancing and so on. And then they say, oh, we'll open outdoor markets. You think, are you insane? There's no danger to anyone outside. So my take is I'm getting really angry at how adrift they are from how quickly we need to get schools. You know, you're the economist. I'm the one who failed maths O level. But we need to get these businesses up and running because, you know, what's coming down the line is horrendous. And I think that's what so much of the population wants to hear about now. I risk offending a lot of people by saying I think the lockdown should be eased a lot more quickly now, carefully, but steadily. I think shops should open before the middle of June. I think that you know the World Health Organization is saying there's no sign of a second wave of this. That's right. And there is no simple trade-off, Alison, between lives and livelihoods. You know, if we tank the economy seriously, people will die. A lot more people will die because of that than the people who will unfortunately and tragically die from this disease. You get deaths of despair. If we're at 3 million unemployed, which we could easily be at once the furloughing scheme is over, if there's a big sort of run on the currency, if if there's systemic problems with our banking sector, this sounds inane and money-driven, but it really isn't. This is people's lives. And I personally think we've got to be much more bold about how quickly we ease the lockdown, not recklessly, because I actually think it's reckless to you know build up so much uh, of a burden on the, the exchequer, huge national debts we're now going to be running. And that's not going to do anyone any good. We can only really keep the NHS going in its current form if there's an economy to support it. Go beyond the headlines with The Telegraph's daily coronavirus podcast, a roundup of the latest news on the pandemic from our leading journalists, with analysis on the impact on health, business and travel every weekday evening. Search Coronavirus the latest on your podcast app. Let's move on to um, our first ever visitor to Planet Normal. Let's hear from... Alan Johnson. I'm a huge admirer of Alan Johnson, the former grammar school boy turned postman, turned union leader, turned education secretary, health secretary. Anyone who hasn't read his memoirs, they're a fabulous read. There are three volumes. They're all named after Beatles tracks. This boy, please, Mr. Postman, which the Beatles sang, and then the long and winding road. Spoke to him early this morning, Alison, and this is what he said. So, Alan Johnson, you're the first ever guest on 
Planet Normal. I'm not worthy. Uh, it's a privilege <laughs> and a pleasure. <laughs> I'm not sure whether that means I'm more normal than anyone else, but it's great to be on this planet. I think you are, you're ordinary, aren't you? I mean, that's the amazing thing about you. You've held some of the great offices of state. You're the postman turned home secretary, but you're just an ordinary guy. So given the, the offices of state that you've held, what have been your thoughts looking on at this lockdown and how the government's been handling it, Alan? Well, I was health secretary when we had the last pandemic, which was 2009. And although it didn't end up as uh, devastating as we expected to be, this was the return, by the way, of H1N1, yeah. Spanish flu, you know, that killed millions in 1918, 1919. And it came back again when I was self-secretary. So I've, I've got some experience of dealing with it and I've got nothing but sympathy for the people who have to deal with it now. This is different because it's a respiratory pandemic and not a flu pandemic. But what I think, is, I, I went on the BBC and other broadcast media, Sky, right at the beginning because they were interested in this link that I was self-secretary last time we'd had a pandemic. And I reassured people, look, there's a national pandemic plan and it'll kick in, and it doesn't matter who's in government or how competent they are or incompetent they are in a sense. The plan is about how the NHS and the health service, the police, all the different agencies will deal with this because they'd have learnt from the last pandemic. The other point I made is a pandemic is top of the government's risk register. It was in our day and it is now. Not a terrorist attack, that's second. Uh, a pandemic was the top of the risk register. So you were pretty reassured that the plan, I was reassured, the plan is and there that, and it would kick in. And it would kick in. And the more I heard about the shortage of PPE in particular, which should have been there, the more kind of dismayed I got that they weren't that for some reason. And it'll all come out in the wash. But for some reason, they weren't as prepared as they should have been. And part of that is because we didn't have... SARS in this country. It was confined to Asia. So you had countries like South Korea. So we didn't have that readiness. Japan, etc. Yeah, who were more ready for a respiratory pandemic. But actually, there's very little difference between the two in the sense that, you know, you have to have the PPE equipment for which other kind of pandemic you're going to get. We siege track and trace too early. We com commence lockdown too late. The lack of quarantine that we introduced straight away only being introduced now for people coming into this country. It's like we're, we're introducing quarantine. It's at the wrong time. As everyone else is, 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 is ending it. So everyone else is coming out. So everybody's got to spend two weeks in quarantine from, from the 8th of June when they fly in and out. I find that extraordinary. And if you look at other countries, you know, you look at Greece, for instance. You know, we say, oh, we've been through austerity. That might be some of the reason why we didn't have the equipment. Greece had 25% of its GDP it lost in, in austerity to end all austerities. They have a population that has mu is much older than ours, and they've got a death rate of 170 in total throughout this, 170 in total. You are a compassionate guy. You've got friends across the political spectrum. Does part of you as a former health secretary feel a bit sorry for Matt Hancock? You know, yes. he thought the plan was in place. He pulled the lever and the end of the lever broke off in his hand. Well, I mean, it's, I, I, I do sympathise with him having to deal with this. I sympathise with, you know, the, the prime minister having to deal with this. It's a terrible situation to deal with. But when eventually the proper independent inquiry takes place, nothing will hide the fact that we made some bad decisions. And Matt Hancock was responsible for some of them as, as well. So yes, my sympathy is tempered with the fact that this is politics and 
politics is a contact sport. And the night of the election in December 2019, you famously railed against momentum. That You blamed the party within a party. You called them a cult for Labour's terrible result that night. Do you see signs that your new Labour leader, Keir Starmer, is purging the party that means so much to you from, from that kind of politics? Yes, I see big signs. I mean, the fact that he's weeded out some of the rubbish from our shadow cabinet who were there just because of their ideology. The question for Keir Starmer is you cannot continue with a party within a party. They were there just to glory their great leader, Corbyn. Now we've got rid of all that ideology, I hope. Keir has to you know, continue on because he's got a tough job as well. How's he playing his cards, do you think, Alan? He's been quite standoffish in terms of really going for the government during this lockdown, hasn't he? He didn't sign the letter that other party leaders signed recently protesting about Dominic Cummings, for instance. I think that's sensible, although he has said now that he would have sacked Dominic Cummings. I think, you know, what Keir is doing is lifting the spirits of everyone in the Labour Party because Keir has been forensic at Prime Minister's questions. He's someone to be feared at PMQs, whereas I think you know, for a couple of years, it was just a bit of a laugh for the Tories against Corbyn. And he's also picking his battles very carefully. He's not getting back involved in Brexit Mark II. The public don't want to plunge straight back into that. And certainly not the old Labour seats that you lost to the Tories. Yeah, exactly. There's not much appetite for a second referendum up there. And there never was. And that was another of our yeah. huge mistakes. You know, we should have, I mean, where you come from, Liam, you might not agree with this, but we should have bitten Theresa May's hand off with that deal. We should have voted for that deal. That would lead to a Norway model. Maybe Corbyn was too thick to know that he'd won... Well, of course, he was he was for leaving anyway. Yeah. He's absolutely in tune with the people who wanted to leave. He's in tune with you. You you agree with Jeremy Corbyn, Liam? That can't be the case on many things. How do you think the How do you think we're handling as a country getting the schools back? I know you put great store by by education, and yet, of course, the education divide has just been widened. I think during this lockdown. Oh, absolutely, and uh, so. The government was absolutely right to try and get a measured partial return on 1st of June. I could understand the unions questioning that and asking, you know, for equipment and all the rest of it. But to actually put teachers and even parents at the heart of this issue when it should be children at the heart of it seemed to me a a big mistake. Once again, Keir Starmer didn't follow them down that route, which would have been tempting, but he, uh, he kept his counsel on that. I mean, I have to, you're, you're, you know, you're a former union leader, famously. You know that world incredibly well and a phenomenal track record in that world. It strikes me that the teaching unions, some, some of their leaders have been incredibly unreasonable, telling teachers not to cooperate with the government at one stage. Yeah, I, they got it wrong. And sometimes, you know, trade union leaders have a tin ear for what the public thinks. You know, sometimes they rail against Labour politicians for not doing what they want to do. But I tell you, Labour politicians have a much closer ear to the public than trade union leaders. Trade union leaders sometimes don't even have 
a good ear for what their members are saying. It's their activists that dominate. And I've got the greatest respect, incidentally, for the two union people involved, Mary Busted in particular, I've known for a long time, but and, and the other guy who came from the National Union of Teachers, uh, I think they're good people. But they got this wrong and they read it wrong and having sought the assurances that they have and hopefully got them in terms of class sizes, you know, I mean, you can keep social distancing in these situations after having danced the war dance and had the meetings with Secretary of State, etc., then find an elegant way to, to say, right, okay, we're, we're assured now. And how's the lockdown been for you, Alan? What have you been up to? Have you been playing guitar? I got a Fender Telecaster for my birthday. Trying on your old suits? <laughs> uh, yeah, just basically in shorts and T-shirt as I'm sitting here now because it's a lovely day in East Yorkshire. Now, I've been writing, Liam. It's a tough job when you're writing fiction. You know, I, I would say to people, they would say, what are you doing at the moment? I'd say, writing a book. And I'd say, yeah, but what are you doing? You know, like as if 80,000 words, you know, that you have to Just happens. Just happen. <laughs> so I do about four hours a day writing this novel, which will be out next year. You know, I would class myself now as a writer and former politician. But I'm sick of writing about myself. <laughs> Alan Johnson there, the first visitor to Planet Normal. What do you think, Alison? He's our perfect guest, isn't he? Perfect guest. I thought he was very interesting that he had a little nibble at the teaching unions there. Obviously, he's formidably well connected in that world. And yet he says that they that the, the unions have, have got it wrong. Yeah, he's so right to say that we shouldn't be putting the parents and the teachers first. It should be the children. And we do we do know, Liam, that the EU says that 22 European countries have opened their schools without much fuss and bother and no spike in infections. So that to me as a parent is is really, really important. You mentioned in the interview, I don't know if everyone saw it, the brilliant election night thing where Alan was on the ITV News election coverage with John Landsman, the head of Momentum, and he delivered the most withering brilliant line it was so amazing because ed balls and george osborne were in the in the same studio and they literally right. turned around and they were sort of sitting there cackling as they listened to <laughs> this incredibly respected figure in the labor party hammering john landsman who's who has been running momentum go back to your student politics john you've always been deeply disappointed by the working class haven't you <laughs> absolutely phenomenal <laughs> but didn't it didn't it didn't even hearing him now it makes me think quite nostalgically about his generation of politicians, not just obviously on the Tory side, but the the Charles Clarks and the Tessa Jowles and the David Blunkett. Yeah, formidable people. All great people. Very, who've very been impressive people. Speaking, yeah. you know, recently you've heard some of them making a lot more sense than some of the present cohort. Indeed. I have to say, though, I do agree with him on Keir Starmer giving Boris Johnson a run for his money on uh, parliamentary questions, particularly the way PMQs is at the moment in this lockdown version with very few people in the chamber mm. and his sort of forensic QC mind. He's had Johnson on the back foot a few times, hasn't he, during the lockdown? He certainly has. And I think the point Alan made, you know, that the Tories had really got lucky, hadn't they, for sort of two years, having basically fungus the bogeyman opposite them, you know, mumbling into his beard. And uh, suddenly you've got someone saying, no, but what did you actually do on this particular day? 
And yeah, Boris has looked pretty ruffled. But also, I'm, I think we're not sort of really saying he was incredibly unwell, wasn't he? I think he probably came closer to dying than we know. Yeah. And I'm very aware watching him that he still doesn't look 100%. If I was his mum, I'd be saying, you know, go to bed for a couple of weeks. But the nature of the pandemic is he can't. So he's having to try and recover as he's still in the middle of things. And I do think he deserves some sympathy. I have to say that, I mean, a lot of Telegraph readers will be Tory voters, but I certainly think Britain works better when you've got a proper leader of the opposition. It looks as if he or she could at some stage be the next prime minister. I personally think it's it's good that the Labour Party's getting its act together as a, as a plausible alternative government. I think it keeps the Tories on their toes and stops hubris. Yes, no, it certainly does. Although I, I still think some of the some of the shadow cabinet is, you know, not not necessarily what we'd want. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, Labour. You know, I've I've voted Labour and I voted Tory over the years, but uh, it would still take me a bit of convincing. While all the identity politics is going on, yeah. I think I would sort of still mistrust Labour a bit, you know. And also, he's got to deal with the anti-Semitism, hasn't he? Absolutely. And uh, let's see if if Starmer really can purge his party of uh, of momentum, as Alan Johnson says that he will. Well, look, before we go, listen, let's move on to some readers' emails. I know you get hundreds of emails and letters from readers every week in response to your columns. I get lots of emails and letters too. What have you had this week? Well, I've had a lot complaining about the slowness to get out of the lockdown. So Judith says the government is starting to look cautious beyond belief and deluded. Social distancing in parks has been going on from day one. Socially distanced meeting in gardens for the past months, barbecues for the past two weeks. They are not offering us a crumb to alleviate our situation. I have nothing on the horizon to look forward to. Boris, let me out. (laughs) I had Sally Fletcher from Kidderminster who wrote to me, most of my columns are about economics, of course. She and her husband run a small catering company. The banks rejected their applications for a bounce-back loan. They've had to you know, refinance their home to try and keep the company going. They're keeping staff on who they're loyal to, who they haven't managed to get into the furlough scheme. And Sally says to me, I- I'm completely fearful about our future. I just don't know if our company is going to survive. It keeps me awake Every night, it's the first thing I think of when I wake up every yeah, morning. Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people with that kind of dread. So I've got Julie here uh, speaking up for Dominic Cummings, saying he acted as a responsible, caring father and a freeborn citizen. How could you leave a vulnerable child with both parents in danger of becoming incapacitated? Let's call this situation for what it really is, a political hit job to avenge the 2016 referendum result and the resounding general election victory. It has sod all to do with public health. I think there's something in that, but I do think there are still quite a lot of reasonable people who don't want Cummings around and want him to resign on the strength, not of his politics, but of what he did. I don't agree with them. Maybe you do. I don't want him to resign. Then we need all we need all the strikers on the pitch that we that we can get. I did like this one from Mark. This was talking about some teachers showing a reluctance to go back to school. Rather than clapping these people on a Thursday, perhaps we should have a nationwide mooning at a set hour towards <laughs> teachers who won't go back to work. So that's the pants down solution. let's end it there okay (laughs) planet normal's been launched our podcast is in orbit we're gazing down on this mad and, and and wonderful world do join us next week listeners and every week and before then 
I can't imagine any of you have got anything to say about lockdown, about Dominic Cummings or any of the things dividing the nations. But if you do, send us an email to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. And if you're feeling really techie, why not record a voice memo with your thoughts on your phone and you may even hear it on next week's show. Alison and anyone over 50 who doesn't know how to do this, <laughs> phone someone under 30 and ask them. Yeah, I've got my own technical assistant here, age 24. So you're lucky I'm here at all. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we hope you have. Please tell your friends about it. Tweet up a storm. Leave us a five-star rating. Even a short review on Apple Podcasts. Please be kind. We're just getting going. As a new show, it will really help for other people to find us. And if hearing our voices hasn't put you off completely, you can read more of our work on The Telegraph's website and listeners can get a 30-day subscription to The Telegraph completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. Most important of all, please subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're going to be talking to some fantastic people who share our views that parts of the media just don't get how ordinary people think. We've got a grammar school scouser turned cabinet minister famous for her eggs, who's never far from the headlines, one of the most authoritative critics of the government's lockdown strategy, a former top spy, M if you like, with some surprisingly down-to-earth opinions. So until next week, goodbye from Liam and me on Planet Normal. Goodbye and touchdown. <laughs>